this morning, I invite you to turn with your Bibles with me, first of all, to the Gospel of Matthew. In a moment, we're going to be turning to Micah, which is going to be our text for our sermon. But by way of background, I want to read, first of all, from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. What this records here is not something that took place uh, immediately at the time of of the Savior's birth. You read that he was in a house and uh, rather than in a stable at this point, but uh, nevertheless it was a time associated with his coming into the world. And so we read beginning with verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And now I want you to flip back with me to the prophecy of Micah. Micah is right after the book of Jonah. And... Uh, I want to read from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which is our text this morning. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Before we consider these words and what they mean to us, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we bless you and praise you that so many times, long before our Savior came into the world, the prophets spoke of him. And we marvel at the way in which one person could fulfill so many prophecies. And this testifies to us that indeed he is the Son of God. Indeed, this book that we read is a book that's come from heaven for it cannot be explained in any other way. We pray now that you would be pleased to speak to us from heaven, to teach us of our Savior, to help us to worship him, adore him, and serve him more diligently and more consistently. We pray that your spirit would be pleased even now to illumine the glory of our Savior in our hearts and our minds. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But with his contemporaries, Isaiah and Amos, the prophet Micah prophesied during the 8th century B.C. at a time when Israel and Judah had arisen to heights of economic prosperity, but had begun to fall into the depths of spiritual decadence. Amos especially speaks of the prosperity of of that time. And under the skillful leadership of Jeroboam II in Israel and then of Uzziah in Judah, the territories of both of these kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdoms, they had become almost as extensive as they were under the reign of Solomon. It was a time of great economic prosperity, fostered by cooperation between Israel and Judah and also the absence of Invasions coming from the surrounding nations. But beneath all this external prosperity, an internal rot had begun to eat away at their spiritual condition, and it was threatening to destroy the social fabric of these two nations. Canaanite religion had begun to infiltrate Israel and Judah. But this wasn't the only thing. While Micah denounced this encroaching idolatry, Micah gave special attention to the social injustices of their ruling classes. And when nations begin to forsake God, the wealthy and the powerful, they tend to abuse the weak. 
But God will not allow the spiritual departures and the social injustices of his covenant people to go unchecked. And so he sends prophets, he sends chastening. And the halcyon days of peace and prosperity, they were destined to come to an end. And under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser III, Syria was experiencing a remarkable resurgence of power. And the time was not very far off when the Assyrians, under the leadership of Shalmaneser V, would occupy the northern kingdom of Israel. And several years later, the city of Samaria fell to Sargon II in 721. And Micah prophesied about this event in chapter 1. You want to just turn back to chapter 1. Notice what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. And so this is about the northern kingdom. Micah is prophesying to both kingdoms. And he tells them of the fall of Samaria that was about to take place. And then down in the south in Judah, Ahaz's pro-Assyrian policies, they made Judah a little bit, little more than a satellite of Assyria. He paid money all the time to Assyria to keep him away. And it wasn't until Hezekiah came to the throne in 715 that sweeping religious forms took, reforms took place. But even under Hezekiah, Assyria continued to threaten Judah. But an attempt, as you know very well from reading the Old Testament and especially Isaiah, an attempt by Sennacherib to take Jerusalem was miraculously averted by the intervention by the angel of the Lord. And this is the broad situation among the nations of what was taking place at that time. And Micah goes back and forth between prophecies about the future glory of God's kingdom and the near-term chastening of God's people that they would endure. For instance, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we read of the future glory of God's people. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And so a time of great glory is prophesied there. But then in that same chapter, when you skip down to verse 9, our attention is abruptly shifted from future glory to the realities of the impending crisis. And so we read in verse 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. That's the time when they would be led out of the city, captives. Now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so there's times of great glory, but there's also immediate chastening. And Micah goes back and forth between those themes. And from Micah's prophecy about the future glory of Jerusalem, his hearers, they need not to have a false sense of security. Israel was not going to have any king. Jerusalem would be taken captive by the Babylonians. And God's people were going to come under the dominion of godless nations. But Micah quickly follows this dark prophecy with words of hope again. At the end of verse 10, he says concerning God's people in Babylon, there you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then in verses 11 and following, Micah depicts 
The nations gathering to gloat over the misfortunes of God's people. They mock them. They ridicule them. But they don't know the plan of the Lord for his people. And so in chapter 5 and verse 1, the prophet returns to the impending crisis. And he says in that place, now gather yourself in troops. This he's speaking to Jerusalem here. Gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. And so this phrase, gather together yourself in troops, it's, it's a summons to the city of Jews, Jerusalem, that was being besieged, to gather in troops to defend the city. And the striking of the king on the cheek, it was a symbol of extreme insult. It marks the, the, the it pictures, you see, the victory of Judah's enemies over Judah. The king is called a judge, and it reminds us of the fact that that the king was supposed to judge, and he was not judging. He was social injustices were going unchecked. And this brings us to the text then that we have here in chapter 5 and verse 2, in which the prophet looks beyond this immediate crisis and even beyond the return of the exiles after the 70 years of Babylon captivity. It takes us to the ultimate reason for hope. The preceding picture of Jerusalem's fate the preceding picture of, of the king being hit on the cheek and by the rod. This is followed now by the prediction of a king that would bring lasting security to God's people, a king whose sway would extend to the ends of the earth. And so here in verse 2 of chapter 5, the speaker is Yahweh. And in this verse, Micah uses a literary device that's called an apostrophe. And by an apostrophe, I'm not talking about that little little mark that's right before an S of a possessive. You know, if it, if it was Micah's such and such, that kind of apostrophe. But the apostrophe that is here is an address that's made to, to something other than a person. And yet it treats that thing or object as if it were a person. For instance, Paul uses an apostrophe in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? He's talking to death. Death, of course, can't hear. But he's treating death as if it was a person that could hear. And here Micah delivers a divine apostrophe to Bethlehem Ephrathah, the birthplace of the Davidic dynasty. And contained in this verse is a glorious messianic prophecy about the coming Savior and about his birthplace. Now, as we unpack this verse this morning, we want to notice three parts of this prophecy. We want to notice, as time allows us, first of all, his birth as the son of man, his office as the son of David, and then his procession as the son of God. I want to spend the most of our time, or a larger portion of our time anyway, first on the first of these three main points, his birth as the son of man. The Messiah is to come forth from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town, and it had a geographical location. It was a place that could be seen with the eye, a place where people lived. When Herod later on inquired about the place of Christ where he was to be born, immediately the chief priests and the scribes, they knew about this text, and they could cite it. They didn't have to say, well, just a moment, Herod, we want to run back to the temple, search through the scrolls and try to find out what, what maybe we might find there. No, they had it in their heads. They could quote it right off the bat. He is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, according to the prophecy of the prophet Micah. And this means that Christ was to be born in this town. And if he's to be born in this town, this means that he is a human being. Angels are not born, but humans are born. But he's more than a man, because Micah goes on to tell us that his goings forth are from eternity. But the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, it proves that he is a true man. This is a son of man. Now, with respect to his birth as a son of man, the text tells us two main things. It tells us, first of all, of its obscure location, and then of its providential appointment. But notice especially its obscure location. Where was Jesus going to be born? It was going to be in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now the naming of this place 
It would remind Jews that were familiar with the Old Testament birthplace of David. That was where the Davidic dynasty began. It was in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It would lead them to expect the rise of an ideal king and the Davidic lineage. It would lead them to think about somebody that was going to rise from that very place where the Davidic dynasty had originated. And it also should have led them to think about the obscurity and the loneliness of that place. Who would have ever dreamed that so unimportant a place would have been the birthplace of David? Well, let me point out a couple things about this obscure location. First of all, notice with me Bethlehem's remarkable history. While the little town of Bethlehem was a comparatively humble place, it was beloved by Hebrews that cherished their history. Jerusalem might shine in splendor because there was the temple, there was the glory of Israel, there was the city of the great king, as Psalm 48 puts it. And yet around Bethlehem, that little town not too far from Jerusalem, there clustered some incidents in the history of the nation of Israel that made it a cherished place in the minds of pious Jews. First of all, it was known by the name Ephrathah. Its first association was that of sorrow, because it was there that Rachel died. As Rachel gave birth to her son Benjamin, she died, and according to Genesis 35:19, she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So the writer has to explain at that point that this place, Bethlehem, that's where you know it now, but that's what it was. It was Ephrathah before. And therefore, Jacob, he set up a pillar over her grave. And this incident, it's almost prophetic, because Rachel first calls her son Benoni, a son of sorrow. And might not Mary have also called her son a son of sorrow, for her sword, a sword would pierce her heart not too long after he would be born. But there was another woman that made this place a celebrated place. Just like Rachel, Naomi had her own set of sorrows. During a severe famine, she and her husband Elimelech resettled with their two sons in Moab. And while she was there, her two sons married Moabite men. Or Mo, no, they, didn't marry, they married Moabite women, sorry. But alas, Elimelech, the husband, dies of Naomi, but also the, her two sons die. So she's left with these two Moabite women, and what is she to do in that foreign land? Well, eventually she and her daughter-in-law, they return to Bethlehem. It's only Ruth that comes back with her. And they did this because they heard that the Lord had visited his people there, supplying them with bread once again. And when she returned, she said, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But in Bethlehem, a wonderful, wonderful events were in store for her. A well-to-do man named Boaz took an interest in the daughter, in Ruth. And he married her, and from that union, there was a, 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 a Jewish man and a Gentile that were joined together in marriage. And from that union of a Jew and a Gentile, there came Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. And it was from that lineage that our Savior has come. So this little town of Bethlehem is a significant place, you see, in the history of Israel. Now, when the prophet, years later, when the prophet Samuel was sent to anoint David to be the second king of Israel, God said to him, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending to you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons, for Samuel 16.1. You remember that an evil spirit came upon Saul. He troubled him. Saul wanted a musician to, to quiet his, his moods when the evil spirit would come upon him. And he was told by his servants, you remember, of a young man that was skillful in playing the harp. And when David returned from the battlefield, and, and David, by the way, was that harpist, and he was brought in before Saul. But then a little while later, when he returned from the battlefield with Goliath's head in his hand, 
Saul asked whose son he was. And David says this, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And in time, this same David became Israel's second king. And ever since that time, the little town of Bethlehem, it was considered a royal city. Even though there was not a throne there, it was the place where royalty had, had, had originated. And so little as Bethlehem was, it was highly esteemed because it was from Bethlehem that the Davidic line of kings originated. And so it was right, it was very profit, uh, very, very proper, I should say, that the ultimate Davidic king, the Lord Jesus, he would be born in that same place in Bethlehem. Now, in addition to Bethlehem's remarkable history, notice with me another thing, Bethlehem's descriptive name. The name of the town is Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. And this is an extremely fitting name for that city because he who is the bread of life, he would be born in that place, the house of bread. Our Lord Jesus is the bread of his people. He is the bread on which we spiritually feed. And as our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, we live on Jesus during our wilderness days here below. And famished by the world, we find no sustenance. We find no satisfaction except in this Lord Jesus, the bread of life. The husks of the world, they might satisfy the swinish taste, you see, of worldlings. But we need something more substantial. We need bread that's given to us from heaven. And that blessed bread that's been provided from heaven has been made of the bruised body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was baked in the furnace of his dying agonies. And from that we taste the true bread which has come down to us from heaven. The lowliest member in the family of God can therefore come to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And the strongest man can come to Bethlehem for that same bread. So whoever you are this morning, whether old or young, whether important or less important, Jesus says to you, I am the bread of life. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, that's me. And if you say, Lord, give us this bread always, he says to you, I am the bread of life. He who should come to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So won't you come to him and eat? Won't you come to him, the only one that can truly satisfy your, your deepest needs? Won't you receive him by faith? Won't you take this one who is the very bread of life, born in the city of bread? But the other name for this town is Ephrathah, and this means fruitfulness. And this name distinguishes Bethlehem from other towns that were also called Bethlehem. For instance, there was a Bethlehem in the, in the, uh, the tribe of, of Zebulun's territory, and you read of that in Joshua chapter 19. Now this place, Ephrathah, it was the name of the place, you remember I told you a moment ago, where Rachel was buried, where she died as she was buried. And this place called Ephrathah later on became known as Bethlehem. When Boaz became Ruth's kinsman redeemer, all the people said this, the Lord make the, the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Ruth 4.11. So even back, way back then, Ephrathah, Bethlehem, are now begin, those two names are associated one with another. So this Ephrathah distinguished the identity of David's hometown. We read again in 1 Samuel 17.12, David was the son of of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, whose name was Jesse. So Ephrathite appears to be the name of the district in which Bethlehem lay. Now just as the meaning of Bethlehem, house of bread, hints of the fertility of that region, remember Ruth and Naomi came back from Moab to a place that her bread was now there. In other words, the crops were growing, and they went to Bethlehem, a fertile, fruitful place. And just as that name, House of Bread, is a hint of that, 
The name Ephrathah indicates also its fertility because Ephrathah means fruitfulness. And it's very well that Jesus was born in that fruitful place because all of my fruitfulness, all of your fruitfulness comes from him who was born there. Our poor barren hearts, they have never produced one true genuine spiritual fruit in and of themselves. All of our fruitfulness, dear people, comes from Jesus. He is the source of our fruitfulness. He says to you, he says to me, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, the ground all around us is cursed. The curse came upon the, the earth, you remember, because of sin. And uh, the ground is cursed, therefore. It brings thistles and it brings thorns. And they sometimes can look pretty, but they hurt and they harm. And they're utterly barren. And it's only through our union and communion with the Lord Jesus that we will ever bear fruit. So this is a wonderful place. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a glorious place, rightly named, the fruitful house of bread. In Jesus, dear people, is abundance. In Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is a banqueting house. It is in Jesus that you go to that banqueting house with loaded tables and your soul is satisfied. So Jesus says to every one of us, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Well, we want to move on. Having noted Bethlehem's remarkable history and noted its descriptive name, notice with me a third thing about this little town, its humble position. In our text, we are told that it is little among the thousands of Judah. After David's time, the town seemed to have declined in importance. And other events were taking place at other places, and it seems like not much was happening in Bethlehem. It was a little town, though, that wasn't far from Jerusalem. So when Rehoboam was fortifying the cities around Jerusalem, we, we do find out that he made Bethlehem into a city. He made it and I think what that means is that he built a wall around it because he was fortifying the cities around Bethlehem. And you read of that in 2 Chronicles eleven six. And then in their return from the captivity, the Bethlehemites are mentioned as being among the ones that returned from the exile to take up residence in their hometowns. And we read of that in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 21, and also in Nehemiah chapter 7. But throughout biblical history... This place was always thought of just as it's expressed in the carol that we sing. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That's actually accurate exegesis. It was a little town. Who would have ever dreamed that so unimportant of a place would breed David? That it would be that place that would be the source of the greatest king that Israel had in its earthly days. Who would have ever thought that? Of all the clans and the tribes of Judah, the Ephrathite clan around Bethlehem, it could hardly supply, you see, an army unit that would, would help very much at a time of military levy. And how strange it is then that God summons the man of his choice, David, from this insignificant source. And when Saul offered his daughter to David... And he did so on the condition that David would go and lead the army against the Philistines. And of course, you remember Saul wanted David killed that way. What did David say? He said this with respect to his father's clan, the Ephrathite clan. Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now, why was Jesus not born in Jerusalem, we might ask? We think that that'd be the place where he should be born. He's going to be the king. That's the capital. And the kings reign from their capitals. 
He was to be king of kings. He was to be lord of lords. Why wasn't he born in a stately palace in Jerusalem? Why was he born in such obscurity? Why was he born in a poor peasant family that could only afford two turtle doves or two pigeons when he was presented in the temple? Why was he born in that town Micah calls little among the thousands of Judah? Why was he born in a stable and laid in a manger? Didn't God choose Bethlehem for this reason? To illustrate, I think we can see it, it's to illustrate the extent to which Christ humbled himself and became a slave, became a servant, and even gave himself up to the death of the cross. In her wonderful hymn of praise, Mary, you remember, exclaimed, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And even so, God is looking today for people that will take their place among the lowly, among the little ones of Judah. That's who he's looking for. With this man I will dwell, he says, with him who is of a humble and contrite heart and who trembles at my word. Now maybe the place that God has assigned to some of us is a means to humble us. Maybe with some of you, you in a way, some way or another, you are little among the thousands of Judah. The circle of people that you know is, is rather small. And if somebody Googled your name, they wouldn't come up with a Wikipedia article all about you. They, they, they would have a hard time finding anything, perhaps. And if maybe they said, well, maybe I'll be able to find a picture if I Google images and then they type your name in. And still there's, there's nothing there. And if you get buried, there might be somebody that passes your tombstone on the way to visit another grave site. It sees your name that you died in such and such a day. And he would give it as a, another thought because your name is, doesn't mean anything to that person you see. God has given you, yes, talents to be used for his glory. But they're not the kind that would be publicized far and wide. You are little among the thousands of Judah. But take heart, dear sister. Take heart, dear brother. Christ is always born in Bethlehem above, among the little ones. Big hearts never have room for Jesus. Christ doesn't take up residence in big hearts. He takes up residence in little hearts, in little towns. The mighty, the proud, they don't have Christ as their Savior. He comes in at low doors and never in high ones. This is the Christ of the Bible. He says... Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. You ever think about the fact that he says little children there? He's not talking about teenagers. He's talking about little children, Luke 18. So are you a little child, or maybe just a little bit older than a little child this morning? You have to look up anytime you talk to an adult. And you, you, you think, oh, it's going to be so wonderful when I get bigger and I get like the rest of them there and, I, and I'm a big person. But you know what? A lot of times when people get bigger, they get prouder. And when they get prouder, they don't think that they need Jesus. And the best time, dear children, the best time for you to go to Jesus is right now. Let the little children, he says, come to me. And so I would say to you, little child, Go to the Lord Jesus. Ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And especially if you feel little inside because God has begun to show you that your lies are really displeasing to him. There's some things that you do, your brother, your sister, they're, they're, they're not pleasing to him. They're sinful. They show what's in your heart. And you've begun to feel little, you see, because now you know about your sins. And it's the little ones. Jesus says, let the little ones come to me. You can come to him right now. But now there might be some of you that have grown tall, as tall as you'll ever get. But until you feel little again, you won't come to Jesus if you haven't come to him yet. Maybe you're in college. Maybe you're about to enter college. And you're pretty smart. You get good grades and you learn things rather quickly. Your problem is that you think you're too big to come to Jesus. Your problem, you see, is you've begun to stuff your head with arguments 
uh, that people use proud arguments in the world that use against the Bible and, and, and certainly creation and certainly the Bible and all this stuff is, it, these are just stupid fables that, that poor people that have silly heads, they talk about. And you have these big smart ideas about yourself. When the disciples, you remember, had gotten too smart for their own good, what did Jesus do? He took a little child and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And this prophecy, it's not only relevant to little children and to people that are too big and they need to be like little children, but it's also good for a little church. One doctrine that's very prominent in the, in the book of Micah is the doctrine of a remnant. I always remember one of the things that Dr. Bob Martin used to say is that God's still in the remnant business. And the remnant is something that, that is a prominent theme in the book of Micah. And this is one of the most significant contributions, we might say, even to the prophetic theology of hope. And one of the striking features of Micah's remnant theology is that he doesn't just speak of a remnant as a little group that just kind of hunkers down in some kind of a cave, waiting for the storm to go over, waiting for the nuclear bombs to explode, and just kind of hunkering down. Instead, you see, he foresees the day when the coming one will stand in the midst of a little remnant of Judah, and in his majesty and his power, it'll extend to the whole earth. And yet, who does he use? He uses a little remnant for the furtherance of his kingdom. We see this theme, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 6. Notice it. Maybe you could turn back with me there. Chapter 4. Verse 6, we read, That day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. Micah depicts people that are regathered as the lame ones, as the outcast ones. And they're outcast and lame. They're humbled because of God's chastening. And he speaks of them also as exiles. He hints at the shame that they feel. Can you imagine what it's like to be driven out of a country by enemies and you have no home? It's not a very proud thing to be homeless, is it? These are people that are like homeless people. They've been expelled. And the contrast, you see, is between their present misery and their present helplessness on one hand and the strong nation that they will become through the power of the Lord on the other. But ultimately, however, the deliverance of God's people, it will exceed that which took place even when, is, when Judah returned from the exile. Because when he who was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, which is little among the thousands, when he comes again, and when he is born in that city, according to this prophecy, he will tend his little ones. He stands among the little ones of the thousands, and he will tend them. And so we read in chapter 5, verses 3 and following. These are the verses right after our text. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who was in labor is given birth. Then the remnant, there's that same remnant, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. And they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria." God delights in using remnants. He delights to perfect strength out of apparent weakness. He delights to immortalize obscure places like Bethlehem, Ephrata. He delights to, uh, to, to immortalize places like Bethlehem, New York, and a little church that's in Bethlehem, New York. People try to attach themselves to great places. They, they say, well, I was born in Cambridge. I looked it up on, the, on, the, on, on Google. What are the richest cities? That's one of them. Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where I was born. I got my doctorate at Harvard. They like to associate themselves, you see, with such places. But in Bethlehem, we see the divine purpose to choose the base things of the world 
and to bring to nothing the things that are. In his sermons on the book of Micah, John Calvin captures, I think, the, the message of this text when he says, when God's faithful ones realized that Jerusalem was about to be raised, that it would be reduced to rubble and chaos, they still concluded salvation comes from Bethlehem. That is, from a district from which no one expected it to come. God has always God has ways of causing his church to flourish, which human reason cannot comprehend. Well, we've concentrated on Bethlehem's obscure location. And now I want just briefly to notice, to have you notice with me one other thing about Bethlehem before we move on to our second main point. Notice with me its providential appointment. Out of you shall come forth to me. Or as some translation puts it, out of you shall come forth for me. I think that's probably actually a preferred translation. And again, Yahweh's the speaker. And what he says here closely identifies the coming king with the purposes of God. God has made a purpose with respect to this one that was going to be born there. He's going to be a king that will be devoted and will carry out the Father's will. David was the one that did the Father's will, remember. He was a man after God's own heart. And this one, his goings forth, will not just be for the benefit of the, of the people of Judah. It will have supreme regard, you see, to the sovereign will of the one who sent him. He will go forth for me, Yahweh says. He won't seek his own will. He will seek the will, you see, of his father. And by the wonderful outworking of God's providence, Jesus' mother was brought to Bethlehem at the very time when she gave birth to her son, the Lord Jesus. Now think of it. Pastor Hill mentioned this in the Sunday school hour. Jesus' parents were residing in Nazareth. And naturally at that time of the year, they would have liked to just stay in this winter time or maybe late fall. They wouldn't have liked to be traveling that time of the year. But Caesar Augustus, he's issued a decree that everybody's going to be taxed. But why can't they be taxed in Nazareth? Isn't the money good enough in Nazareth? Why, why, do, why can't they be taxed there? Instead, you see, the emperor, he decrees that they have to go to their original town. And why did Augustus make this determination at this precise time? It's simply because the king's heart's in the hands of the Lord. And also involved in this intricate plan was a quarrel that Caesar had with Herod at that time, and one of the Herods was deposed. And so Caesar says, I'm going to tax Judea and make it a province. It's not going to be a separate kingdom under Herod anymore. I'm going to make it a province. You're going to go back, therefore, you see, to your your hometown. And why would this be? And when should it be? And why was the census taken at that time of the year? Why would they do this in December, maybe, or November? We don't know exactly the time when Jesus was born. Why did it happen, you see, in October? And why not tax people where they were living? Wasn't their money good enough there? And furthermore, hundreds of years earlier, Micah had prophesied that this birth was to be taking place in Bethlehem. That's the reason why it took place. It seemed like Caesar's whim that he just makes it hard on people to make this trip and he could tax them there and they have, to, they have to do all of this. But God's been arranging it to fulfill this promise that had been made hundreds of years before. And neither God's decree nor God's word can be broken. Caesar makes a decision and that decision is freely determined. He thinks he's doing what he wants to do. And little did he know that he was participating in God's redemptive purpose to have our Savior born in that little town of Bethlehem. Well, so far, all of our attention has been given to Christ's birth as the Son of Man. But now I want you to notice with me, in the second place, his office as the Son of David. And here we take our thoughts from what is said towards the end of the verse. He is to be one to be ruler in Israel. When the wise men came to Jerusalem, they began to ask everybody in the streets, everybody that they could see, where is he 
who is born king of the Jews? That's the question they ask, Matthew 2 and verse 1. This is a remarkable question. Do you ever think about that question? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Who's ever been born a king? Nobody's ever been born a king. Children, some of them might be born princes. But what infant comes out of its mother's womb already a king? I can't think of an instance in history where that's ever taken place. He might be born Prince of Wales and then wait for a few years until his father dies and then they manufacture themselves a king by putting a crown on his head. But he isn't born a king. I can remember only one born a king, and that is Jesus. And there's something emphatic, I think, therefore, in that verse that we sing, born thy people to deliver, born a child, and yet a king. Nobody's ever happened to before. Now think of it. The moment Jesus came forth from his mother's womb, he was a king. The moment he was laid in that straw-filled feed trough, He was king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't have to wait till he came of age that he might take the empire. From the moment that little tiny hand clutched his mother's finger, he was wielding the scepter of the universe. He came as king, ruler in Israel, as our text puts it. But somebody says, Well, then he must have come as a king in vain because very few people have submitted to him. He came unto his own, after all. People like to quote the Bible against us, you see. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. How can you say he's born a king? He came to rule Israel, and immediately what happens, Israel rejects his rule. He's despised, he's rejected of men, he's cast out, he's even crucified as a blasphemous imposter. Ah, but they are not all Israel that are of Israel. There's a difference, you see, in terms of who he is king over. He is not the ruler of Israel after the flesh, but after the spirit. And millions upon millions throughout these centuries, they have submitted to his rule. They've gladly owned him as their king. And is not the seed of Abraham after the flesh, you see. This is not the, the true seed. But it's those who, like their spiritual father Abraham, by faith, see Jesus as Savior and Lord and King. The Messianic King in Micah, he's not the sacrificial substitute as Isaiah pictures him. Yes, he is that, but Micah doesn't picture him that way. We don't read in Micah of how God can strictly uphold his justice and yet forgive sinners. We don't have... A picture like Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 53 of the suffering substitute, the suffering servant as our substitute bearing our sins. But different prophets bring out different aspects of the Savior's glory. And it's important for us to see, yes, as Isaiah shows us, that Jesus is a priest, a priest who offers himself up as a sacrifice for us. But Micah shows us that Jesus is also a king. And as king... He will establish a kingdom like no other. He will rule with absolute power and yet with gracious consideration. I love the way it's put in verse 4. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Before we move on, I want to ask you, have you submitted the rule of this king is he a ruler in your heart or not now we might know the true Israel by this Christ has come into the hearts of those that are the true Israel and he's come to rule over them well you say I was never bondage to anybody I'm not slave I never was was in bondage the idea of submission to the will of another thing this seems like the essence of bondage And if this is the case, my friend, you hate the rule of Christ. You don't want him to reign over you. You want want to do your own thing. You don't want to do his will. You want to do your will. You suppose you're free to do whatever you please with this kind of a mentality, but this is your slavery. You're in bondage to the sins that that hold you in in this life. 
And you have no ability to part with your sins. And not only do you need a Savior to suffer in your place, my friend, you need a Savior to come into your heart to subdue your rebellion, to put a stop to questioning all that God says and wanting to resist those that God has put over you. And so I ask, is, is, is Christ ruling in your heart this morning? Do you seek to make decisions that are in agreement with his will? Do you seek his counsel for difficult decisions? Do you desire to honor him? Do you want to put a crown on his head and be an honor to this, this Lord Jesus? Well, I don't ask if you do this perfectly. There are times when his true subjects are broken in heart over sins that they've committed. But true believers, they seek and they really want to obey their king. And if you sincerely seek to do this, you're part of the Israel over which he came to rule. He has come to be ruler in Israel. It's the spiritual Israel, ultimately. And if you're part of the true Israel, you'll rejoice that it's so. This truth that he came to be ruler in Israel, this is desperately needed today. On all sides, we see men and women casting off restraint. Whether this takes place with rioting in the streets or defiantly declaring that I have the right over my own body, therefore I can kill this baby, or whether it's by insolently insisting that every sexual perversion is to be equally not only accepted but also to be affirmed, the common refrain of all these daring declarations is that we will not have this kingdom rule over us. I don't want somebody to take, tell me what to do with my body. I don't want have somebody to tell me what I'm going to do when I go out and riot and bash windows in. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I would say if you begin to have that kind of a, of a heart, you want to just disobey, you want to rebel against the Lord Jesus. My prayer is that you would repent of that and that our majestic king would stretch forth his rod in your heart and reign in your heart and bring you into submission, into repentance. And may it be that he would do this not only in our hearts but in the hearts of our fellow Americans. This is our hope in this, this country that's it's pretty like, much like what's happening back in Micah's day. The, the idolatry and the, the wickedness, it's, it's growing. And might we therefore pray with greater intensity, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we've noted his birth as the son of man and his office as the son of David. But now finally, I want you to notice with me his procession as the son of God. And this we take from the words at the end of the verse, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The word for the future, it's backed up by a word about the past. How do we know what he will do? We, do, we know it because of what he, what, what he did. Well, the Hebrew expression that's translated, whose goings forth, that expression primarily means to conduct your activities. It's found, for instance, in 2 Kings 19.27, where God says of Sennacherib, I know you're going out and you're coming in. And it often has a military connotation. It's often used in the Old Testament of the army going out. They go forth to war. That's the same kind of phrase that's used here, whose goings forth are from of old. And in contrast, therefore, with the weakness and the subservience of the Israelite monarchy that was now about to be taken over by these pagan kings, this expression about the Messiah, about the Messiah going forth with great might and with irresistible power, is a striking contrast. And in this context, these words about the ancient past of the Messianic king, they tell us that he did not have a beginning, ultimately, in Bethlehem. Micah uses two expressions to describe these ancient goings forth. He speaks of him going forth from of old, and secondly, from everlasting. Now, I can't be dogmatic about a hard and fast distinction between those two phrases. Some interpreters, they, they think they really were speaking about the same thing, two different expressions. But I'm inclined to see 
in that first expression, a word about his goings forth in ancient times, and in the second place, a reference to eternity past. But just briefly, think with me about his goings forth in time from of old. At various junctures in the Old Testament, we read of the Lord visiting men. On four occasions in particular in the Old Testament, he appeared, that is, the Lord Jesus appeared as a man. This was even before he took human flesh to live on earth. The first instance that you remember his appearance to Abraham in Genesis 18. There in that place, three men come to visit. We read at the beginning of that chapter, and we're going to go into more detail when we preach through Genesis. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. And as we read on, we see that Abraham says, Lord, to one of these three that are visiting him. And the others were created angels. And we see that in verse 22 of the same chapter, that the other two visitors, they turned and they went to Sodom, the place where the Lord was going to destroy. And then it says, when those two went to Sodom, Abraham stood, and here's very significant phraseology, he stood before the Lord. This was the Lord Jehovah. This was the Lord Jesus before whom Abraham stood. And in the following verses, he's pleading with the Lord for the safety of his nephew Lot and for any other righteous ones that might be left in Sodom. But we don't have time to go into all the other ones, but just to mention them, the second instant of the appearance of the Lord takes place in Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with, with the Lord all night by the Jabbok River. And then the third instance was when he appeared to Joshua in Joshua 5, the captain of the Lord of hosts. And he is appearing to him just after the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River. And then the final appearance is in the book of Daniel, where the three Hebrews are in the fiery furnace. But in each case, these are very significant events. They were events in which God's servants were engaged in momentous activities, or they were about to engage in something momentous. And in each case, while the Lord's appearance was awe-inspiring, he didn't appear to destroy men, but rather to save those to whom he manifested himself. He came to deliver them. And these instances, they encourage us to believe that this same royal sovereign, this one who went forth, whose goings forth from of old, while he might not manifest himself in a visible way to us as he did back then, he still visits his people as they're engaged in his work. And we can be assured of this, that his goings forth have been of old, and that he still goes forth with those that seek to take the gospel to the lost, because he specifically says, Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. So it seems that we have a hint, this phrase, his goings forth of of old, of those times when he went forth and manifested himself to his people. But also we have in this text a reference to his goings forth from eternity, from everlasting, as it's put in our text. Dear people, let's never forget that the little babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger some 20 centuries ago, this little babe is the ancient of days, whose goings forth have been from eternity. A similar expression is used of the Lord's wisdom. It's personified in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 23 of that chapter we read, I have been established from everlasting. Same phrase. From the beginning, before ever there was an earth. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses expresses his awe in the presence of God. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so Jesus could say to the Jews of his day, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal present, from everlasting to everlasting. And so, blessed be God for the elect. This people is, this, this, this one has been going forth from everlasting. And he's been doing this, dear people, not for your damnation, not for my damnation, 
He's been going forth from everlasting for our salvation. Of old, he went forth as our covenant head in election, according as God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. From eternity past, he appeared before our Father in our behalf. And from eternity, he signed, as it were, the great redemptive pact. He pledged himself to pay blood for blood, wound for wound, suffering for suffering, agony for agony, and death for death, in your behalf and in mine. And without so much as one complaint, our dear Savior pledged that in our behalf, he would be spit upon, he would be pierced, he would be mocked, he would be scourged, he would be crucified, he would suffer the physical and the spiritual agonies of the cross. He did this to save you. And this is something that astounds me when I think about this. Jesus had all eternity to change his mind. And sometimes I, I would think that from eternity he would look and see Mark Sarver's many sins. Sins that he commits after he's been saved. Kind of real good thanks huh, for being saved. The sins he commits after he's been saved. And it seems like well, maybe Jesus would say to the Father, well, after all that I've done for him, is this, what he, is this what he does to reward me for my suffering? Take him off the list. No. Never once did he commit himself to save anyone and then change his mind. Even though he could foresee what a wretch I would be, from everlasting he went forth for me and for you. And I say to you, if he's been going forth from everlasting for your salvation, is he going to lose you now? Has he had you in his grip from eternity? Is he going to lose his grip right now? Are you going to be lost in the end? My name from the palms of his hands, eternity cannot erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. And so my dear sinner friend, as I close, I've been speaking words just now of comfort to God's people to give them assurance. But I also want to, to let you know if, if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus, that Jesus has not stopped going forth for sinners. Let me remind you that when he goes forth, he goes to Bethlehem's. Do you have a Bethlehem in your heart? Are you little in your own eyes? And if this, if this is the way it is, if he's brought you to, to see who you are of your need, it's especially for the little ones that he comes. And have you been convicted, of, convicted over your sin? Have you begun to wonder if there could anybody, be anybody in this room that we're in right now that's worse off than you? And you've begun to wonder. God's begun to convict you. It's to such ones, such little ones, to such Bethlehems that he comes. He will come to your poor house, to your lowly heart. We'll invite him in. Receive him today. Don't put it off. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Submit to him. Be little in his eyes. Come to him like a little child. Well, as we close our time this morning, we haven't had time to have a regular Christmas service as we have often had, um, in which we go through many different hymns, but I thought we would at least sing one more hymn. It's not taken from Micah. I can't believe, believe that somebody hasn't written a hymn based on Micah 5.2. Surely out there, Isaac Watts or somebody's written a hymn. Maybe I'll find it someday. But there's a wonderful hymn. It's based upon what's said of the Messiah to come in the book of Isaiah. It's found in hymn number 190, or 163. To us, a child of hope is born. 163.
pray together. Blessed Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you were born in the little town of Bethlehem. And we pray that you would be born in the hearts of some, even in this room, that see themselves as among the little ones of Judah. And we pray, Lord, that we would never get beyond the place where we see ourselves as being little, though despised in the world, yet honored by you by being given a Savior, a Savior who says, let the little ones come unto me. May such ones even today come to you, Lord Jesus. May those of us who have come to you, may we not grow too big for, 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 for who we are. May we remember that we are always little before you. You are great and you are majestic. You are our Lord. You are our King. We pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts up, even in these evil days, too, to do great things for you, even though we are little, a little flock, as Jesus spoke of his disciples. We pray, Lord, that you would do great things, even in this day, our day. We pray it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.